So in Isaiah chapter 3, the Lord begins this proclamation through the prophet Isaiah of the judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, he starts with that statement in verse 1 of how he's going to take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store. So all provision is going to be taken away, is what he's saying. goes on about the bread and, and how even you know the skillful artisan and the rulers will be taken away. He goes on about how you know they're gonna want to have a ruler and be so starved for even the identity of their politics, you know, their king and their rulers that even someone who has clothes, you know, will they'll be saying, You have you know, you've got a suit. You be our ruler is the sort of attitude that they're going to come to. You know, children will be their oppressors and uh, destroy the way of your paths, it says in verse 12. So this whole thing that is just this horrific judgment, the grinding the faces of the poor that they have uh, conducted themselves in. And then he gets into this description of how in, in places they're going to be taken away in slavery. And he's he uses a description of their sort of um, fashion world appearance and how it's going to be replaced by the nakedness of their slavery. And he talks about how, you know, they go along sort of mincing, you know, walking in a seductive and a sultry way with all these beautiful clothes and jewelry and, you know, fragrance and perfumes and, you know, real fashion statement. And that's all going to be replaced with nakedness and baldness and scab. And that is a description of them being led away in chains in their captivity. All of these things that are going to be replaced, how they'll fall by the sword and the men and the warriors will be destroyed and the place will be desolate and they'll sit on the ground. And then in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, and in that day seven women shall take hold of one man saying, we will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. The reproach in this culture was especially for a woman to not have children. And so they're literally saying, you can give us children. You know, we'll have seven women that will marry one man. You give us children, take our reproach away, and we'll, we'll take care of ourselves. We'll get jobs. We'll, we'll raise the children. Just be a husband father our children, which is a disgrace in the eyes of the Lord that his people would come to this place of wanton destruction. So then in chapter 4, if you're sitting there right now thinking, well, why the division at verse 1 that way? Why is that improperly segmented up? Well, that's a good question in a lot of locations when you go through the scripture, when the prophets wrote, they didn't write chapter one and then chapter two and then chapter three and divided according to 
verses and sentences. That was done centuries later by men who simply wanted us to have a roadmap of numerical addresses in order for us to find our way around in the Bible. So you're going to run into a number of occasions throughout the scripture where the chapter and verse divisions don't fall in places that suit well to understanding the passage. So, uh, you know, it's simply to say verse one of chapter four best fits in chapter three, because now in chapter four at verse two, you get this description of the branch of the Lord and how it's glorified. So verse two, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. So all of this judgment that's being referred to here, those that have escaped that are going to be very beautiful and very fruitful. Now, it's an interesting thing because there are several layers to this sort of unfolding historically. One, you have the judgment that comes upon Israel in the north and then later on Judah in the south and how they're taken away in captivity. And at the time, uh, when people are taken away in the beginning, the people in Israel are making statements about how those individuals that were taken away were the especially wicked amongst us, and that's why God caused them to fall under judgment and be taken away first. And we're going to stand our ground, band together in our patriotism, and defend Israel as sort of their attitude. For any of you that have studied through that passage, if your mind flashes to when were these things happening, for instance, when Daniel was taken away in captivity, he was amongst that first wave, and he was of the royal family. And any of you that have studied the life of Daniel, that description of him being you know, the wicked and the ones who would be punished first, that doesn't fit. Okay, God took his choice individuals out of the way and placed them in reserve in order to protect and preserve them in captivity, but they were protect, protected and preserved, right? Not going to eat the king's table and, you know, we're not going to eat the choice food and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace and all of that is that group protected and preserved in the first wave of captives that were taken away. The rapture and the first wave of those that are taken away and those that will be left here on the earth. It's an image. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come. So then the subsequent waves of God's judgment come, and then what are you left with? Well, those that have been barely able to survive. There are going to be people that survive this occasion. Historically, we know that. 
And then there were the foreshadowing of the tribulation and the judgment of God that is to come. They're those that will survive through to the end of Israel and of the Gentiles. The nations will be brought before the Lord and they will be judged. And then they will be established under him as he rules and reigns on this earth. Anyone who opposes or resists him will be met with very firm discipline, correction, and even annihilation if they are willing to oppose him that strongly. So the multi-layered image of what the prophet is showing us here certainly has, obviously, the most clear understanding is as Judah is rebelling against the Lord, eventually their judgment is going to come and they're going to experience punishment. And there will be very few who survive in the end, and the Lord is then going to raise them up and build something glorious out of them. In the tribulation and then in the millennial reign, 144,000 Jews will survive, and the Lord is going to bring them into his kingdom, and they will be a, you know, a glorious entity that uh, you know was uh, established on earth under him. So when we're looking here at the uh, ones that escape, it shall come to pass that he was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies of cloud of smoke by day and a shining of flaming fire by night. For all over, for excuse me, for over all the glory, there will be a covering. There will be a tabernacle for the shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for shelter from storm and rain. So this fulfillment that the Lord is bringing uh, to the nation of Israel, when he comes to reign, this this has a only a spiritual sense of fulfillment when the nation of Israel had rebelled against the Lord and they were taken captive by Babylon and then when they were restored into the land that's that's only a shadow the the fulfillment of those things that took place in the past that's only a shadow of what's going to happen in the future. This passage has more to do with what's going to happen in the future. This pillar of cloud and this pillar of shining over uh, their dwelling places, uh, this has not uh, taken place since Moses was, uh, you know, come out of uh, Egypt and brought the people through the wilderness you know we we get this um sort of image in our minds that uh you know there's this pillar that stood over as it's described uh like the tabernacle of israel and it was there as um a a uh, you know a sign you know if any of you have um, had the opportunity to have been raised in Sunday school when 
flannel graph was still taking place. Any takers on that? Does anybody remember show of hands, flannel graph? Uh, so, uh, you know, the like low grade Velcro and you, and you stick it up on the thing and you, you know, do the presentation for the kids. For the nation of Israel in the way that it's described in the scripture, if you let your mind expand beyond flannel graph a little bit, uh, it seems to be indicating that this pillar, this column covered the entire nation of Israel. So as they were in the desert, um, at a bare minimum, you're talking about 2 million people. Uh, so, you know, twice the number of the entire population of the state of Maine. In mass, if you take a more realistic view, you're talking about like 8.5 million people. That's a giant group of people in the wilderness. And this pillar covers them covers them. According to the scripture, it shades all of them from the heat of the sun during the day, right? If, if you've been in the intense heat of desert or even the south, you know, small amounts of shade become extremely welcome. You know, when we were in Louisiana, after Hurricane uh, Katrina, I remember finding myself standing very still so that I could stay in the shadow of a telephone pole. It was, it was so hot, so, so different than the heat up here, just sweltering, melting. Small amount of shade. You know, some of you have been deployed and been in very hot, harsh locations. And, uh, you know, Cloud covers, especially welcome in the desert wilderness. And then simultaneously, those that I've talked to who've been in Iraqi deserts, especially, and experienced that, the nighttime gets very cold. Part of its perception, because it was so hot during the day, and the other part is there's no cloud cover to hold the heat into the atmosphere, so all the heat disappears and you're left in very cold conditions that pillar of fire warmed them the nation of israel was under a cloud by day and a pillar by night think about how parentally thoughtful that is right like some old nana that just always wants to shade the poor little kid's head as they're out playing in the sun, just always wants to protect, you know, when they go to bed at night, doesn't want them to be too cold, tucks them all in nice and tight, warm. This is the heartfelt understanding of who God is. He wants his children to even be protected from the scorching heat of the intensity of the day and to be protected from the discomfort of cold as the night falls. When we come to the millennial reign, the Lord is telling us here that everyone who is worshiping the Lord will have some reflection of that experience. Over their places of dwelling and worship will be that idea of protection. Is it going to be literal, figurative, spiritual? Seems to indicate some sense of literal. 
that it's a sign to everyone. You know, I recently was having a conversation where an individual was expressing as they were viewing my life that they thought things were somewhat imbalanced and unfair. They're viewing my life saying things along the line of, yeah, but you've got it so easy and I've got it so hard. And I didn't get all weird. I just said, like, describe what you mean. And what they're describing in the end really doesn't have to do with comfort or ease. It has to do with their confessing in the end, I'm living in sin and I'm suffering all the consequences of that. And you are not, and therefore from my perception, it appears that you're experiencing undue blessing from the Lord. Because as we sat and we measured out, what are we talking about? Health difficulties, financial difficulties, emotional difficulties. As we go through the list of possibilities, I'm faced with all the same challenges they are. It's just that in their mind, I've got a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And they're just exposed to everything that is raw and painful. God is so good to us. He's so good to us. And it is a sign to the world. Unfortunately, the world doesn't always take it right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They see the pillar of fire, they see pillar of cloud, and they don't interpret it properly. Honestly, it's a waste of our time to sit around and try to explain it. The best thing we can do is just continually invite them into experiencing it. Just come under God's protection. Just, just step into this environment. You're still going to be faced with the same trials and difficulties, right? I mean, everybody in the room says amen very heartily, right? Because life isn't easy. And yet, with the Lord, it seems so much different. Even as your world seems to unravel at times. You can stare right at it and go, you know what? I've learned the faithfulness of the Lord. And he is going to take care of me. How? I don't know. Right? I, I like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for that. Because they're being threatened. Well, threatened. They were thrown in the furnace, right? I mean, but, but they're being threatened with being thrown into a fiery furnace that was big enough to contain at least four human beings, right? Yeah, no, my count is correct, because then Nebuchadnezzar sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and one like the Son of Man walking around inside the furnace. So it was big enough for at least four people to walk around inside. And it was heated so hot beyond what it was normally heated that it burned up and killed the men who threw them into that fire. And they said, as he was threatening them, we're going to be delivered from you. One way or another, either through the fire, we'll come out the other end of it unscathed, or by the fire, we'll be destroyed and not have to deal with you. 
Whatever this challenge is, I'm going to be delivered from the challenge. Either through the challenge or by the challenge, I'm going to be delivered from the challenge. I like that about them. I like the chip on the shoulder that just says, do your worst. Because God's on my side. Here, when you move through this failure and judgment of God and you come out the other side into the glorified existence of what he wants, there is going to be this pillar that symbolizes his protection. Is it going to be literal? Possibly. Possibly. You'll be able to know where the believers live. (laughs) Pillar of fire and cloud right over there. Or symbolically, you will have that sense of believer and follower of Christ. It's a great and wonderful picture that's being set out here for what we have to look forward to. Now, in chapter 5, at verse 1, it says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Interesting. Interesting how Isaiah starts very poetic, referring to the Lord. To me, it's interesting when we've just completed the study in the Song of Solomon and how much this sounds like, you know, the Shulamite and her relationship with King Solomon and the back and forth between them. Here, Isaiah is just, you know, let me me sing you a song about my well-beloved. And you'd almost expect him to break into sonnet about some beautiful maiden. And instead, who's he referring to? The Lord. My well-beloved. He's so, so good to us. So kind, so gracious, so benevolent. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Okay. There are... Certain vines and certain plots of ground. I've had opportunity to read a lot on this since 1998. I have read a lot on vineyards, but I'm, you know, sort of like that dilettante. I I have no practical experience in being a vine dresser at all. Never worked in a vineyard, but reading a lot of the information about it, the soil and the vine are the two things that are going to produce really sweet fruit in grapes. So the acidity or the base of the soil uh, versus the vine and its origin. You know, some of the French vine originally was some of the most choice grapes that were produced. And later, the Californian vineyards uh, refined what they were doing and became some of the sweetest grapes that were ever produced and the sweetest wine ever produced. So, you know, I'm not thinking about starting, you know, a vineyard or wine company, but there's so many references in the scripture to the vine, the vine dresser, you know, Jesus Uh, talking about he's the vine, we're the branches. All of this comes together, so you get to the point where you're like, I got to know stuff. Like, well, like, how does this fit together? What are we talking about here? So here, 
Isaiah tells us that his beloved had the two choice elements in place. Choice vine, choice growing location. The obvious outcome for anyone who is a vineyard owner, especially in the ancient world of Israel, reads this, and they're thinking, oh, the outcome is going to be so good. He's got the choice vine. He's got the choice vineyard. This is just going to be a wonderful experience. That would be the assumption. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. Oh, so he's gone through great lengths, you know. You know, you see certain gardens, and you're just like, somebody's got too much time on their hands. You know what I'm saying? I, building towers years ago, there's a place outside Bangor. I did a lot of work on those towers and to drive up this mountain road. And here's this big piece of property this man had. I got to talk to him has these massive gardens inside these huge fences. And, uh, you know, when I first see him working in there, I'm thinking, well, I mean, that's a pretty massive project. You know, we'll see how it goes. Having been involved with some gardens over the years, man, end of the year, every time, you know, I drove in through there by that place, there's never weeds. Constantly tended. You can see all the improvements he's making to promote growth and diminish any other influence inside that garden. The big garden patches, three of them, as I remember, two on the west side and one on the east side of that house. Just and so I stop and talking to him. Designed the places so that the ends of these huge fenced in places open up so the tractor can go back and forth and till properly and then close up. And I'm not talking small, like almost as big as this room, one of them, three of these things. You know, like, so, you know, what's up with the fence, man? He's like, deer. You know, I'm thinking, well, they're really tall. He's like, yeah, I put them up last year, half this high, and they just spring over them, you know what I'm saying, and eat whatever they want. So now they're twice as high constant tending just he's gone through everything you know and, and then you realize you know i'm driving up and there he is out working in the garden then you drive back down and there he is out there working in the garden this is like the retirement project just you know he was diligent in engineering years previous and now that he's retired he's as diligent in this as he was in that everything's in order Everything's, you know, right to the end of the year. He finishes that thing out and lays his whole garden to bed perfectly. Wow, you know, just like don't ever come to my house and look at what I've been doing. This guy has chosen a choice plot of ground and choice vine, and he is tending to it in such a way that it is going to produce without question. He built a tower in its midst. That means he lives there. That's literally what that means. Building a tower is a camp. Like some people have the summer camp. In these locations, they have the garden camp. In the summer, they go live in the midst of their garden. 
the whole family. It's like a celebration. They, they go from the inner city living in a small house out into the country and everybody moves into the elevated household and all of those traditions, routines kick into place and the kids are all running around. It's like being at summer camp and tending the garden. And it's an elevated tower so that they can keep an eye 24 hours a day on the garden. They can see. Are people trying to get in my garden and steal my grapevines? Are the foxes in here digging holes and eating off the lower branches? They have an overview of the entire garden. Everything is within their view. Living in the tower, building a tower, has to do with constant attention to their vineyard. He also made a wine press in it. That means that he expects it to yield enough to him that he can go through the process of making wine himself. Very often, as we look through the ancient scriptures and we hear about vineyards, the grapes are gathered in and then taken to a wine press where a community would bring their grapes together and work together to get the wine from the grapes. This guy has not only enough vineyard, but enough resources to build his own wine press to harvest it to himself. So this is talking about substantial vineyard here that he would require a wine press for himself. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, if you're thinking, I found wild grapes. I've been in places and just found grapes growing. I have too seen that, but that's not what's being referred to. Wolfsbane is the wild vine. It does bear beautiful berries, but they're bitter, foul-smelling, and poisonous in their nature. And that's what the Lord means. He's not talking about, oh, gosh, this isn't the high quality I was expecting. No, it's the sort of thing that as it begins to bear fruit, the stench of these berries is hitting everybody like, oh, what is that? There's, there's nothing, the pleasantness that was to be expected as soon as the fruit begins to ripen, everybody is starting to become painfully aware of, this is not what you thought. This is the sort of thing where you drive by and you see, you know, row after row of beautiful vineyard, but the stench that's flowing into your vehicle is like, what is that smell? And then as you go inspect the vine, like, who in their right mind would plant an entire vineyard of poisonous berries? Like literally you would be asking a landowner like, like what's this all about? Is there some weirdness I don't understand here that you've planted wolfsbane? This is what, what the Lord is saying about his own vineyard, you guys. But now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem 
and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? What did I miss? What could I have done? The Lord's literally allowing himself to be challenged on this. It's not just a rhetorical question. It's being posed in such a way that he's literally saying, if there's an answer out there uh, that somebody could tell me about what I should have done more, like bring it forward now. What should I have done for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I take away its hedge, the outer protection, all the way around. I'm going to remove it. And it shall be burned. That's what I'm going to do. There's no converting this wild vine. There's no treatment you give to it. This, this is an absolutely useless, undesirable plant that has no purpose. I'm going to burn the whole thing. I'm going to take away its edge, and I'm going to burn it. I'll break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. There shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. I'm going to take natural and unnatural steps to destroy this vineyard. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant land. He who looked for justice, notice that the he there is actually a capital H on that pronoun. He, meaning the Lord, looked for justice, but behold, only oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. There was supposed to be this beautiful, accurate thing going on, and instead it was ungodly and wicked. The Lord is bringing his judgment because he wanted sweet fruitfulness to himself. And if you think about the history of Israel from its inception, and I, I mean Israel, you can go all the way back to Adam and Eve, but just start with Abraham and the promise of the son and the long-awaited process to finally we have Isaac. And now we have the 12 sons and Joseph, and that's going all weird, but they end up inside Egypt under the blessing of the Lord, and then it turns to slavery. And you think, oh, that's not going to turn out right. But then millions of them are released under Moses' guidance and cross the Red Sea, and things go bad again for a while, 40 years. They finally come to the Jordan, and they cross into the promised land, and they have the struggles with the beginning and Ai, but then the giants start following and conquer the land. And then David. And crowned king and all the glory of Israel and then civil war. 
and the division of the land, north and south. And then idolatry sets in. And the worship of pagan gods and perversion. And then they're even murdering their own children. Offering their own children up to the pagan gods. And God brings judgment. God destroys them. Tears down their wall of protection. And in the process, he puts the question out. What more could I have done? Oh, my word, the parallels with our own country are remarkable, are they not? And look through the history of what's going on. I cannot encourage you enough to go get registered to vote this coming week. And I'll just remind you that the Democratic Party versus the Republicans, don't get me wrong. Don't do, do not get me. I'm not shying away at all from endorsing particular candidates, you know, 501c3 status, all that the government has to say about that with churches and that. I'm not, I'm not shying away from that. I just would ask you to really look at the history of the Democratic Party. Because it is a party of wickedness. Their motives, their methods, their means, their laws, their organization, their leaders stand in opposition to everything we believe. Now, amongst the Republicans, there's no question they're sinful men that need to be called into account. Not saying anything contrary to that. That's absolutely true. But as far as the things you want to see happening by these politicians, the Democratic Party is diametrically opposed to everything we believe. Right down the line. We have voters' guides out front and out back. Don't misunderstand them. They aren't Vote for this candidate. Don't vote for that candidate. That's not what those voters' guides are about. If you want to know that, I'll just tell you flat out. Come talk to me. For real. I'll tell you who and why. You can just look at those voter guides and they're organized. Just here's the issue. Where does this person stand on that issue? Here's the next issue. Where does this person stand on this issue? That's what this guide is. Please, you can register the day you vote. Take those. You can't take them into the polling booth. Study them. Know who and what you're going to vote for. Walk in, register to vote, and vote. Vote in particular in regard to the unborn children. Right now, you can begin to pray. There is a court case that within a year will probably end up in the Supreme Court, in this newly formed Supreme Court, regarding Roe versus Wade. Because Mississippi has a law in place, like the state of Maine, regarding the protection 
of unborn children from murder. And they tried and convicted a man for murdering his wife and the child she was carrying who was eight weeks along in conception. And the state of Mississippi argued before a lower court on all the scientific grounds regarding the fact that life begins at fertilization. And they won. And they convicted this man of murdering an unborn child. He is taking the state of Mississippi to the Supreme Court because he's saying if she could have gone and gotten an abortion and you say it's not murder for her to do that, then you cannot convict me. You can convict me for killing her, but you can't convict me for killing the child. A criminal understands right and wrong that the Supreme Court does not. That case may end up in front of this court. The people we're voting for next week in the midterm election will have everything to do with whether this president has another opportunity to put another conservative judge on those benches. This is the stuff we're dealing with. What did the Lord say at the end of chapter 3 and 4 of how their judges were gone and how they were left without anyone who could even tell right from wrong? Here we are. We're running a and either a nearly identical or an identical parallel to the nation of Israel as a nation. We need God's grace and forgiveness. And we need to be on our face in prayer. And we need to take whatever steps God gives us to respond in sweet fruitfulness to him. He's done everything he could to provide for us. Listen to me. Providing us as citizens the right to vote is a remarkable thing in the entire history of the world. In the entire history of the world. Incredible gift and responsibility that the Lord has given us. To turn the tide. Our righteousness, sitting here in prayer, asking the Lord to be merciful. Take the opportunity to cooperate with the Lord and bear fruit to Him. If somebody else doesn't, then it goes the other way, right? Let's not bear in that responsibility. Let's individually, each of us, have that pillar of cloud and fire over our own existence as we respond to the Lord. In this way. 5 verse 8. Woe to the wicked. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. Till there's no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing the Lord of hosts said truly. Many houses shall be desolate. Great and beautiful ones. Without 
inhabitant. So the idea here isn't, again, God's not opposed to building large communities. He's not opposed to, you know, big farms and land. That's not what he's opposed to. It's the emptiness of it, right? You've got to build more. You've got to prosper. We've got to have, you know, the people move into this place where they're worshiping money and materialism and prosperity, not God. Just going to build and build and build, right? It's, it's crazy. Crazy, the stuff. <laughs> it's not that far back. Some in the room are young enough. They're not even going to remember when Sprint went to fiber optic. No? Is it drawn a blank for you all? The landlines. I'm not even talking about cell phones. When the hardline phone on your wall that you picked up went to fiber optic, right? Sprint built the largest corporate headquarters in the world. Before they could finish the fiber optic build for all of the landline telephones, the industry worldwide was shifting over to cell phones so rapidly that before they completed their corporate headquarters, they were already looking for tenants to lease more than half of their corporate headquarters out to somebody else. Because all these billions of dollars they had invested in fiber optic cables all over the world literally was useless. Literally what ended up happening was fiber optic trunks got plugged into cell phone towers to carry those signals to other locations and rebroadcast them. Their, their, their whole move to join phone system to phone system to headquarters to networks to was useless before they could even get the thing turned on. This is exactly what the Lord is describing. How you're just so consumed with prosperity. Well, that whole New Testament account, Jesus is giving of that man who is looking over his bumper crop saying, what am I going to do with all this grain? Of course, I'm paraphrasing. I'll, I know, I'll tear down barns and I'll build bigger ones and I'll fill them. And the Lord says, you fool. Your soul is going to be required of you tonight. You're not even you're not even going to get out of the dreaming phase, and you're going to be in my presence. Obviously, it's much more necessary to imagine and dream and muse upon your relationship with the Lord. To, to literally fantasize and imagine how your relationship with the Lord could expand and become better and bigger and more fulfilled. Sitting around and imagining how your little kingdom could become something is going to result in what? They're going to be putting every one of us in pine boxes and just disposing of us before any of that's really going to come to fruition. We, we, need to, we need to expand our relationship with the Lord. Woe to you. 
for expanding and attaching and annexing everything. Truly, many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitants. You're all going to be taken away as captives. Build your houses. The invasion's coming. You're all going to be slaves. How, how silly to go through all this great effort. I heard a thing yesterday that yesterday the American economy was in more dire straits than it was during the 2008 collapse. And I was like, that can't be right. Like, look at the results of the 2008 collapse. And then they went on to explain, no, that's really what we meant. And the coming results are just ahead of you. And they explained the deterioration. The tech industry tanked yesterday, worldwide. It's in the process of still. I, I was stunned. I mean, what does that mean? Well, I mean, what does this mean? I, I don't know. You can just be all worried about it right now and go home and find out for yourself. It's incredible. But, but right? All the complaints about previous administration. And what is this administration doing? Our deficit's now $20 trillion? Is that what the current... You know, you guys all got your Google machines in your hands. But I just, this is where we're at. Oh, let's build. Let's make it. Let's go. Like, where's Jesus in the midst of this? Where's this nation's pursuit of Jesus Christ? That's going to be the only thing. You know, this guy's brilliant. Look at his economic plan. Look at how his, you know, foreign policy. Look at, like, like where's Jesus in this discussion? especially for the church. You know, as I just sat here moments ago and did all I could to encourage you to vote, at the same time, is Jesus central in your life, in my life? Better be. Better be, because for all the success that might yield us, there's nothing but vanity and ruin on the other end without it. Has to be the Lord. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly, many houses will be desolate, great and beautiful ones, without inhabitants. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield a bath. It's an immeasurably small amount of wine. Ten, ten acres should be just astro astronomical amounts of wine. And instead, it's like, uh, here's your gallon jug. You know, here you go. We ran it all through the wine press. This is what you got. Why Why did I even bother? This is nothing. It's stupid. And a homer of seed will yield an ephah. Plant, tons of grain. Yield, this pint of seeds. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this is not working out. It just... You know, run your harvester through the field and it just spits out, you know, in your little glass jar. Ting, 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 until you got like at least a little pint jar. Like, what have I done? I just cleared this whole field and this is what I've harvested? I've got nothing back. Does it feel like that sometimes? 
work and work and work and work and work and overtime and work and the second job and work and work and then this is my paycheck? Like, what is going on? Someone's been vacuuming off hours here. This, this isn't right. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, he shifts here, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine, the flute, and the wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. Washington, D.C., the capital of our nation, consumes 10 times more alcohol than California, the wine capital of the world. Washington, D.C. Wow. No wonder all of our decisions are so screwed up. Right? They're all completely lambasted all of the time. Is it drinking lunch? I think that they're drinking breakfast and lunch and dinner until the wine inflames them and they don't have any consideration of the operation of God's hand in the midst of it. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I have been preaching to the leadership of this church at every opportunity about the evils and the problems of legalizing marijuana and what our state is going to face. And my son-in-law went to a meeting today where an official from state government and a person who's directly involved in being a medical marijuana supplier told everyone in the business community that was present at this meeting that marijuana in the workplace was a good thing and should in fact be promoted. And my son and others, but my son prominently, just said, is this how we feel about it? Or is this some kind of actual study that's been done on the benefits. And a lot of scrambling went on to try and explain, particularly from the state of Maine government official, about how this was the case. And James then raised the point of, you know, Colorado has been at this for some time, and they've conducted a number of studies regarding this. Couldn't we just look at their data 
and see whether this is really a beneficial thing or just your opinion. And people were scrambling even harder after that point. Because the opinion is out there, wildly flying around, like, after all, man, it's natural. <laughs> yeah, arsenic's natural. You know? There's lots of stuff out there that's natural. You know? I get smug at this point and say, dog poop's natural. I don't see anybody promoting the smoking of it. The benefits. The benefits. Four-year study conducted by the nation of Australia. Largest study ever conducted. 1,521 patients stayed in the program throughout the entire study. Large pool of doctors, over 25, involved in it. Two areas of research regarding marijuana. One is pain relief. Does it provide any pain relief? Two, does it help people stop using opiates? So everyone who's involved in this is dealing with both of those things. Pain relief and opiate addiction. Summary, it dramatically increases opiate addiction. Secondly, it dramatically increases pain. Increases pain. Because it's not a pain reliever. And it robs your mind of its natural ability to cope with pain. You're shutting your mind down. Like most drugs do. See, there's a whole bunch of what we refer to as anecdotal evidence out there. It's not really evidence. Anecdote is how people think or feel about it. Oh, I had a friend one time that told me how often you heard things like that. I just really feel like, you know, when I think about it, who cares about any of those things? What's the reality of the effects of this stuff on our environment, upon our communities, upon our culture? It's all negative. It's all negative. None of this is real. We're being led astray. We're being led... Listen, for most of us in the room, if we're honest, we used to enjoy being intoxicated in one method or another. And that's what it comes down to. The fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh, one of those things is drunkenness. Sorcery is also in there. You don't have to have anything else. Your flesh desires these things. Your flesh desires these things the same as it desires lust and rage and selfishness. And yeah, our flesh is designed that way in its sinfulness, in its corruption. It wants that which is bad. Oh, you know, you, how many times have you heard me say, I pretty much know as soon as I eat something, whether it's good for me or bad for me. Because if I eat it and I go, oh, that's incredible. 
That's bad. If I eat it and I go, ah, oh, not really thrilled about this. It's probably really good for me. That which my flesh is not impressed with, right? Versus that which my flesh is impressed with. We want to be very careful, right? You just got to follow your heart, man. No. 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 My heart has lied to me over and over again. I've come to the crossroads. I've stared at the decision and said, oh, this is going to stink, but I really want to do it. And I've gone down that road. And I've come to that decision again and said, well, this was terrible last time, but, but it won't be like that this time. And I debate endlessly until I convince myself it's going to be okay. Which actually makes me linger in the problem longer. Because to reverse my decision is eating crow. I have to swallow a big dose of I told you so. And I never like to do that. We deceive ourselves. We follow after these things. The drunkenness that is in our world. Everyone wants to follow it. 5 verse 13. Therefore my people have gone into captivity. Because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished. And their multitude dried up with thirst. Dried up with thirst. For what? Well, most directly, you can look back at the intoxicating drink. But if you're kind of blasting through this drinking and how they're still thirsty, you might have missed the fact that he said, because they have no knowledge. No knowledge of what? God's word, that's what we're going to get to. God, his existence, and his law and his word. The people have no appetite for it, so the thirst grows, so they try to quench it with the things of the world, and they ruin themselves. There are many who don't drink of the alcohol, but they don't quench their thirst with Christ, so then they pursue other things. And they just shove all of it into their life as hard and as fast and as massive a quantity as they can. And they come out the other side going, I'm still not satisfied. They're famished. Therefore, Sheol, the place of the dead. Some translations say hell. Others say the grave. Simply means the place of the dead. Has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure their glory and their multitude and their pomp. And he who is jubilant shall descend into them. People shall be brought down. Each one shall be humbled. The eyes of the lofty shall be humbled, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture. And in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity, pulling iniquity with empty cords, empty ropes, and sin, you know, toward themselves, or themselves towards it, whichever. And sin as if it were a cart rope. They say, let him make speed and hasten his work. 
that we may see it. As they draw either sin toward themselves or themselves towards sin with these empty robes. They're mockingly saying of God, let him prove himself. You know, let him hasten his work. Oh, he's going to bring judgment. Just have him bring it on, is the attitude. Our culture is acting like that. If the saints gathered here tonight are not, the world certainly is. Oh, God, right? Jesus, oh, Jesus. Now we're going to talk about Jesus Christ. Here we go. Judgment of the world. Bible thumper showed up. Okay, go ahead. Tell us all about it. The mockery of God. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. These men in their wickedness turn everything upside down. That's more or less what's being said. When the righteous try to turn the world right side up, the wicked feel like it's upside down. In Acts chapter 17, at verse 6, it says, They dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These have turned the world upside down, and have come here too. The idea is to do the same. Right When, when we say in righteousness that only a woman should marry a man, the world around us screams, that's perversion. That's wrong. That's sinful. That's hateful. That's judgmental. No, that's truth. It's not backwards. It's not upside down. It's not wrong. It is, in fact, right side up. The world likes it upside down so much that when you turn it right side up, they freak out. They freak out about it. 5 verse 22, woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant at mixing intoxicating drink. And that could just be mixing intoxication. So those that are skilled at becoming or creating intoxication who justify the wicked for a bribe, take away justice for the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law, and there it is, of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word for the New Testament understanding of the Holy One, of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them. The hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the street, just thrown out like trash. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still literally raised like it's going to strike. 
He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they will come with speed swiftly. He's going to describe the nations coming to Israel to attack them. It's, it's like whistling for the dog. Like, you know, sharp, crisp whistle, and everybody looks up and he's going, come on, boy, come on, calling them in to attack Israel. He's bringing the destruction in that way. He's beckoning to it in a commanding way. Raise the banner, showing where it is, beckoning for the nations to come swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. They're going to come with an intensity. No one will slumber or sleep, not going to put off the attack and the judgment, nor will the belt on their loins be loosened. They would loosen their belt and take the robes that they wore and they would draw them up through the belt so that the long robe that went to their ankles was shortened up like board shorts to like their knees. They would tuck it in around the back and then cinch the belt down really hard so that they could run or work. And the idea is that when the call comes, the nations that are going to bring judgment are going to gird up anything that would slow them down and fasten it off in such a way that they're just going to be able to sprint to the action. So for everyone that thinks, oh, the judgment is a long way off, God is bringing it here to the nation of Israel. No strap of the sandal shall be broken, whose arrows are sharp, sharp and all their bows bent. Uh, having uh, done a lot of um, traditional archery, when the bow is bent, the arrow is released. Um, you know, you see in movies and such where they draw the bow back and then they hold in position. That's not how you fire an arrow on a longbow or a recurve. You fix your eyes on your target and you hold a position, and when you're ready to shoot, you draw up and release. It's not, you know, the compound bow, for anybody who's you pull it back and those compound wheels fold over and then there's like no tension. You can just hold that shot for as long as you want to. There's no tension. On a recurve or on a longbow, you pull that back, you're going to be shaken in just a few seconds because the tension is on the string. So, so when you shoot in traditional archery, as is being described here, the idea is you've acquired your target, you draw it up and release, just like that. The arrow's on the way. If you see the bow bent, get down. The arrow is flying toward you. There's no hesitation. That's what the Lord is saying. In all of this, it, it isn't that, oh, you've got uh, some time. He's trying to tell them this calamity is collapsing on you right now. That's intense. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like whirlwind. Their roaring will be like lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely. No one will deliver. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. 
It's a horrific thing to realize God's judgment was coming upon them in this way. Oh, that we would learn from our sister Israel and its history. And if nothing else, we as individuals can avoid such judgment. We don't have to experience God's coming doom. And as those that have learned it and submitted ourselves to God and are experiencing his protection and the escape from these things, we then as ambassadors of that kingdom and that salvation can share those opportunities with others. We can invite them out of the destruction. There is a judgment coming upon God's world. And we have the glorious opportunity to help deliver people from it. It requires two things. We have to live by it. And then we have to open our mouths. We have to share the message with people. If you do one without the other, it doesn't work. If you open your mouth and share that message with the world, but you're not living it, it nullifies the message in your mouth. If you live it out, but you don't open your mouth, at best you're just going to cause wonder as people look and go, what's different about this person? If they look at you for a long time wondering what's different about this person and then you finally open your mouth, then you're doing your job. I'm not saying you have to go out and stand on a soapbox in the middle of your town every day. But you do have to open your mouth. You've got to share your faith with people. You've got to talk to them about the Lord. You've got to live it and speak it. So... May the Lord bless you. Let's stand and we'll pray. It cooled right down in here. 76 to 80. Father, we thank you for your word and the blessing that it is. Help us to be men and women that follow it. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, help us to have this message ready on our lips the world around us, so desperate for it. Guide us into those conversations. Use us as your servants and your instruments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God.